This is the second day <clears throat> of this November 2020 five-day online session. And, uh, and just a, a line there in the Hakuin chant, our, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. So those of you who feel a little pang of guilt or regret about uh, the dancing and songs that uh, even if you didn't do it yesterday, you know that it was going on all around. Um, that itself is not outside our true nature. That celebrating is not outside our true nature. You can't get outside this essential nature of ours. After the <clears throat> after the day after the twenty sixteen presidential election, I felt compelled to post on the bulletin board here at Arnold Park <clears throat> a uh, one of my favorite stories it just just is replete with wisdom it's called the lost horse i bet a lot of you have heard this more than once but you know this is this i think is a time maybe that hearing it again wouldn't be the worst thing this day after um the the uh, election was decided. <clears throat> so, same story as the day after, as I used the day after the last uh, presidential election was decided. This is from ancient China. This, this goes back a long way. So yeah, in those ancient times, there was this man who lived on the northern frontier of China. One day his horse ran away and the horse ran to the nomads across the border. Nomads were, I think for centuries, were the enemy of the uh, Han government of China. Uh, the horse ran away to the enemy <clears throat> and everyone tried to console this man, um, thinking it was just the worst thing that could have happened. But his father said, what makes you so sure this isn't a blessing? Well, sure enough, some months later, the horse returned, and this time bringing this splendid um, nomad stallion. And everyone in the village congratulated him. But his father said, what makes you so sure this isn't a disaster? And now they felt very happy. Their household uh, had uh, another fine horse. Things looked good, but and the son loved to ride this horse. But one day, as luck would have it, he fell off the horse and broke his hip. And everyone in the village tried to console him. 
thinking this was just the worst thing. But his father said, What makes you so sure this isn't a blessing? And then a year later, these nomads, the enemy, came in force across the border and every able-bodied man was drafted into battle, took his bow and went into battle. And uh, these these Chinese frontiersmen, not the nomads, uh, but the others, they lost nine out of every ten men. But because the son was lame and couldn't be drafted, uh, he survived to be with his father and mother and to take care of each other. I'm not trying to throw a wet blanket on what uh, many of us thought was an absolute wonderful uh, victory yesterday, but let's just remember that None of us knows how anything is going to turn out. So, so there's so many inscrutable variables involved. And then when you add the, the variable of time, uh, as years pass or decades or even more, historians have this, this, um, advantage of being able to look back and see the big picture and see how things unfolded. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with feeling joy at times when everything seems to be uh, wonderful. Uh, the only thing we'd say as, as practitioners of the Dharma is not to cling to states of joy or um, despondency, not to hold on to them. Because they're states. They're states of mind. They're emotional states. And with all body-mind phenomena, we want to neither suppress them nor cling to them. That's the Dharma. They're natural. We're human beings. We're organisms with all kinds of hormones in delicate balance and we respond to fortune and misfortune and uh, that's our humanity. Uh, what we don't want to do is get caught in any state of mind. Uh, another story comes to mind where uh, the king, I think this is India, even yeah, this is in, in, from India, where a king uh, goes to the royal jeweler with all of his men on horseback, and he he uh, dismounts his magnificent uh, horse, and he goes to the jeweler, and he says, I want you to, here's, here's a ring for my finger, I want you to engrave on this ring something that will support me in times of misfortune and buoy me up 
in times of fortune. It seemed like a tall order. But the jeweler bowed respectfully and said, come back in three days. And so it passed. The king came back, the jeweler with two hands returned his ring to him in a box. The king opened the box, looked at the ring, and engraved on the ring were three words, it will pass. Now back to our text from yesterday. This is a collection of teachings by various uh, Chinese masters, Zen masters, Chan masters. Uh, and the name of the book is Zen Essence, translated and edited by Thomas Cleary. Uh, we left off yesterday <clears throat> reading from the teachings of the uh, 11th century Chinese master Foyan. His Japanese name is Hogan. Just gonna just a couple more entries from Foyan. Usually this is this is Foyan, of course. Usually it is said that there is true Buddhism and then there are imitations and remnants. I say that Buddhism does not have true imitation and remnant versions. Buddhism is always in the world. If you get the point, it is true. If you miss the point, it is an imitation or a remnant. I think this uh, passage uh, becomes more meaningful if we change the translation from Buddhism to the Dharma. I can't explain why, maybe I don't need to. Buddhism sounds, well, it's an ism, so it sounds like it's it's this religion and not that religion. But the Dharma, the Dharma means the truth, the law. It was a I once read it was a Christian missionary in in uh, Japan, I think, who came up with the word Buddhism. But for centuries, many centuries, it was called the Dharma, the way. So let's plug that in instead of Buddhism. Usually it is said that there is true Dharma and that there are imitations and remnants. You can see already um, where this this uh, idea gets into trouble. What? There's a, there's a true truth and there are imitations and remnant truths, laws. So Foyan says, I say that the Dharma does not have true imitation and remnant versions. The Dharma is always in the world. Even in, the word in 
is a mistake. The world is a reflection of the Dharma. Everything, everything is the Dharma functioning. It's beyond this and that, this religion, that religion. If you, he goes on, if you get the point, it's true, it's the Dharma. It, the only thing that could make it not the Dharma is missing, being unable to see it as a manifestation of the way, the law. The three, the three characteristics of the way of the Dharma are impermanence, no self, and suffering or dissatisfaction. How is that limited to one religion? The pervasiveness of suffering. Who, what religion? would deny that what what people would not know that sooner or later through aging through more and more years of life experience so dissatisfaction i, I think other good words for that are frustration anxiety That's one of the three characteristics of existence. It's to some degree or another, this anxiety, frustration, dissatisfaction. That's one. Second is impermanence. Who is going to stand and say, no, there's, the, impermanence is not the way things are. The third one is would be harder to argue, especially to um, Westerners. The, the, the third one is uh, no self, the teaching of no self. But you can see that it's really just a, a logical outcome or, or, or corollary of impermanence. If everything's impermanent, how can there be any permanent self? Just the Dharma. Here's one more from Foyan. You must know how to check yourself before you can attain Zen. It is because of confused minds that people strive on the way. They go to mountains and forests to see teachers on the false assumption that there is a particular path that can give people peace and comfort. They don't know it is best to work on finding out where they got confused.
Uh, let's go back over this first sentence. It's a little bit uh, opaque. You must know how to check yourself. That, that is the translation I find a little bit uh, ambiguous. You must know how to check yourself before you can attain Zen. Well, one way to take that is you, you must be able to look directly into what's going on in the mind. And look and even better, question, inquire into what's going on in our reactions to people and circumstances. must know how to check yourself. We must, we learn through long Zen practice to notice, notice things about ourselves. It is starting with ourselves, noticing patterns, patterns of reactivity, uh, negative reactions, positive reactions, um, we can call them habits, habitual reactions. This is the work of Zen practice, not as a project of its own, but rather as something that unfolds, that, that, that comes to us through long, dedicated Zen practice. We will start noticing things. That's the beauty of, of, of Zen practice is we don't have to uh, have an agenda. We just do the practice. This is, this is the, this is the remarkable thing about Zen. It's so practical, practice oriented. You don't really have to believe anything if you're doing the practice. It'll come to you. You will have discoveries. You will notice things that you hadn't noticed before. Yeah, when he says it is because of confused minds that people strive on the way. Confused, um, meaning um, misconceptions, about oneself, starting with oneself and others, the whole matter of self and other, um, false ideas. Uh, he says, people go to mountains and forests to see teachers on the false assumption that there's a particular path that can give people peace and comfort. In other words, on the false assumption that there's something out there or someone out there that we need to do this work. Now, yes, in speaking parenthetically, it helps to have a teacher, a guide who's been through this, a lot of this for a long time. But that's not where we find peace and comfort. It's not from any person, any particular person. And not long ago, I ran across something online. Uh, it went like this. 
If you're still looking for that one person who will change your life, look in the mirror. It is for each one of us to change. And really, only change can only happen through each one of us. Of course, we're, we're, we're changing all the time. We can't back to impermanence, uh, back to this, this characteristic of existence. Of course, there's nothing but change. But if we're clinging to our mental constructs in this never-ending flux that is our nature, then we're not going to see uh, very clearly, if at all. We're not going to see that each one of us is nothing but change. Each one of us is process. Not thingness, process. It is, this is what is so um, encouraging about uh, the Dharma is that we're not stuck with a self. We're not stuck with anything about ourself. The next uh, chapter is by the, uh, uh, the teachings of the great Da Wei, uh, very famous, probably the most um, famous um, Rinzai uh, or Lin Chi is the Chinese, the most famous uh, Lin Chi Rinzai master between Lin Chi himself and uh, Hakuin. Uh, and Da Wei, like Hakuin, Da Wei uh, was credited with having reformed that that school, the Lin Chi school, uh, that it had fallen into some uh, decay. Uh, his century was the 11th and 12th, same as uh, Foyan. They were contemporaries or, or overlapped. So here's one of the entries under Dawei. He quotes a sutra, the Flower Ornament Sutra. So I've never even had that in my hand, much less uh, read it. But it's, uh, you see, quite common references to it in Chinese Zen. The Flower Ornament Sutra says, If you want to know the realm of the enlightened, you should make your mind as clear as space. Detach from subjective imaginings and from all grasping, making your mind unimpeded wherever it turns. This word, subjective imaginings. Seems like we've, the world, or at least certainly our country, uh, is has become dominated by subjective imaginings, what another translator calls uh, subjective emotional consciousness. 
This is what we're left with when we reject um, science or other um, shared truths, facts. We're left with our imaginings. Now, uh, in the form of conspiracy theories, the most outlandish, ridiculous conspiracy theories, seems quite likely now that there'll be tens of millions there'll be tens of millions now of people uh, who will deny the election count that are denying it. Don't believe it. It's not true. It's a swindle. And really, who of us can speak with authority? Who has, <laughs> who is, can be absolutely sure of any count with such an immense country and all these different states? So let's acknowledge uh, what that we can't absolutely know it. I mean, then we just make our best guess based on all of the evidence. But, but uh, on the other hand, to reject, uh, in the face of so much evidence, to reject, um, to 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 make up so many things and and refuse to believe, uh, this is. This is going to be a big problem. It has been and it will continue to be. He continues, The realm of the enlightened is not an external realm with manifest characteristics. That may be, uh, or it could be construed as a reference to Pure Land Buddhism. Pure Land Buddhism, for those of you who don't know, uh, was um, is and was uh, very popular in in Japan and and also in in China. In fact, I've heard that Pure Land Buddhism uh, is way more popular today in Japan than than Zen is. But here, Da Wei is saying, don't get attached to the idea of some place out there, some divine realm called the Pure Land. Uh, and that Buddhahood, our original enlightenment, uh, he says, Buddhahood is the realm of the eternal wisdom found in oneself. It's that out there. That's it's like one of the fundamental delusions is thinking that it's out there. I have to read uh, one of the famous passages from Zen Master Dogen. The Dharma is abundantly inherent in each individual, yet without practice it will not be manifested, and without enlightenment it will not be perceived.
the Chinese um, did find a way to blend Zen and Pure Land practices. But uh, the Japanese seem to have no no truck with that. You 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 pick Zen or Pure Land. Roshi Kaplow used to say, you know, having spent thirteen years in Japan, he used to say that uh, the, the the quality that you see more obviously in Pure Land practitioners more than Zen practitioners is humility. So let us acknowledge that. There are, for, for centuries, uh, the distinction has been uh, between so-called self-power and other power, that uh, Zen is a, a practice and a teaching of self-power, and uh, pure land is other power, that is, investing one's faith in this uh, Buddha Amida. If you could just be devoted enough to Buddha Amida, then you can achieve rebirth in the Western paradise, the pure land. But really, I won't try to speak about uh, as a pure land practitioner, but in Zen, uh, if there's any self in that self power, and you're not going anywhere. The whole point of Zen is to get beyond the self to this, this true self that encompasses all beings and everything. He continues, you do, you do not need paraphernalia practices or realizations to attain it. That's because there's nothing to attain. How can you attain what you already are? Uh, he continues, what you need to do is clean out the influences of the psychological afflictions connected with the external world that have been accumulating in your psyche since beginningless time. Clean out the influences of the psychological afflictions that have been accumulating in your psyche since beginningless time. This, uh, there is this aspect of Buddhist psychology called the storehouse consciousness. That in all of our reactions, our mental and emotional reactions, our verbal reactions and our physical reactions in all of those things we are depositing in what is called this storehouse consciousness the alaya vijnana uh, residue or seeds karmic seeds that under the right conditions and circumstances will sprout in the future, might be hundreds of years in the future, lifetimes, but under uh, the certain, certain conditions, um, then this is karma. What, uh, what goes around comes around. 
this is this is what we're all facing, all of us. The influences of the psychological afflictions that have been accumulating in our psyches since beginningless time. This is why enlightenment itself does not, we, the job isn't finished with enlightenment because these, these afflictions, uh, to some degree at least, these afflictions remain um, potential or, or active in some sense. They may be dormant, but under the under enough stress that these these afflictions then can manifest themselves. So it's a it's a it's an endless job. And don't don't be disheartened when you hear that. Um, it's endless. That's that's wonderful. There's no end to how much we can purify this heart and mind of ours. And after awakening, it's it's not a chore anymore. It's not a dreary labor to do this stuff. It's it, it's a privilege. It's different after awakening. A a Japanese. Uh, Master used the phrase that our job is to melt the frozen block of emotion thought. Here's another entry from Chan Master Da Wei. He starts by quoting a, uh, a common saying, don't draw another's bow, don't ride another's horse, don't mind another's business. And then he says, although this is a common saying, it can also help you penetrate Zen. Yeah, by um, looking not outside oneself, but into the mind. And he says, just examine yourself constantly from morning to night. What have you done that is beneficial to others and to yourself? Yeah, um, this is not a practice that I've ever um, advised or had recommended to me in Zen, it sounds uh, yeah, I mean it, 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 it can't be bad to examine oneself and ask what we've done to benefit ourselves and others um, but it's not orthodox Zen practice, which is which is not um, looking at yourself and your virtue or lack of virtue. If if we're doing Zen practice correctly, 
then we will, again, that word notice, we will start to notice, we will catch ourselves uh, when, we're not, when we're doing things that are not beneficial to others and to ourselves. In Doksan this morning, someone said that they resist reciting the four vows because they find that it's it's an impossible um, aspiration to liberate all sentient beings, all beings that are number I vow to liberate, and so forth. The other three. And what I said to the person was, it, they, are, they are aspirational. Um, we know, yes, from one perspective, we know that none of us can live up to this. Liberating all sentient beings. Who does that? But our intention, it's, it's, it's laying down an, an intention to let that be our North Star to become uh, vehicles of service to others. We can do this. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. We take this vow to strengthen our resolve to live up to the Dharma, to, to remind ourselves that it isn't uh, just a matter of doing this for ourself. It's uh, that our meditation is not just to uh, boost our earning power or become more proficient in athletics or any of these other things uh, that you hear about as, as benefits of this wildly popular mindfulness, generic mindfulness, that's, yeah, that's fine as far as it goes. But we don't have to settle for just benefits to ourselves. This is right at the heart of the Mahayana. And Zen is a part of the Mahayana. The, the, the importance, the priority of doing this in order to be able to better serve others. We can work on that without uh, imagining that we've ever we've <laughs> we've attained it. In a way, you can say it's our our responsibility to work on it. What is our responsibility in Zen? It's a big word. It's an important word. We're born as human beings. We understand what, what goes along with that word, responsibility. It's part of being human, a full human. In Zen, we see responsibility as really coming down to responsiveness responsiveness. 
and what how do we be responsive in all situations well it comes out of an empty mind the more present we are and not lost in our thoughts the more present we are the more likely we will be ready to respond to those in need. There are uh, traditions, Buddhist traditions, uh, where uh, compassion itself becomes a kind of practice, a, a, a mental, intentional practice to be compassionate, or uh, in the case of meta-meditation, to radiate loving-kindness. And those are wonderful practices. But in Zen, it's, it's the understanding that this compassion or loving kindness, that is our nature and we actualize it. We liberate our innate lovingness and compassion uh, when we um, free ourselves from the manacles of our thought, of our, of our ideas and concepts and pre, presuppositions and so forth. That's where, where we focus our work in Zen, is on seeing through these thought forms, ideas about ourselves and others that bind us, that, that bind up our innate compassion and loving kindness. None of us has fully actualized this innate compassion and loving kindness. And so we just keep working at it. But we have to, we have to be present, aware. We have to be noticing what's going on around us and, and in our own mind in order to be, have a chance of, of uh, living up to this responsiveness that really is uh, the, the point of it all, responding to others' needs. Which doesn't deny, doesn't foreclose us looking after our own needs. That's part of it. We don't have to separate our own from others or vice versa. But to the extent that we're free of the, the notions of I and me and my, then we will have expanded uh, the, our realm of attention to include others. One more entry of time for. Oh no, I'll finish this one about uh, don't draw another's bow, don't ride another's horse, don't mind another's business. Uh, just examine yourself constantly. Uh, and then there's one more sentence. If you notice any partiality, you should alert yourself and not overlook it. If you notice any partiality, uh, another a similar translation from another <clears throat> in another uh, Zen book was self partiality, and I think really that what that really means is self centeredness. 
putting yourself before others. Self-centeredness, self-concern. And here too, this noticing of our self-centeredness, this becomes more natural the longer we practice. We, we, we get onto ourselves. We become more alert to the possibly very subtle ways that we, we keep putting ourselves first. And, and let, me, let me point out that all of this is not a mad, matter of just being virtuous. The Dharma is not limited to that. The Dharma is based on cause and effect. That if the more self-centered we are, the more we suffer in the end and cause suffering to others. We don't have to get into virtue or lack of virtue, being a good person or not being a good person. It's just a matter of causing suffering or not causing suffering. That's what the Buddha famously said, I teach but two things, suffering and the end of suffering. That's all. Keep it simple. Causation, cause and effect. Self-centeredness. We want to grow out of our self-centeredness so that we don't cause unnecessary suffering to others and ourselves. Is what the precepts are based on. All right, our time is up now. We'll stop and recite the four vows.